Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about an event that is so historically noteworthy, it is widely considered by historians to be the watershed moment between two historical eras. I'm talking about the fall of Constantinople. In 1453, a young Ottoman Turkish sultan named Mehmed II marched on Constantinople, the declining capital of the declining Byzantine Empire, and with a massive force of troops and some colossal artillery, he captured the city. And this became a turning point in history. The Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, was a direct descendant of the former ancient Roman Empire of the early first millennium. And with the fall of Constantinople, the last light of the Roman Empire was extinguished. A massive moment in history. And as I say, the, the moment that historians broadly consider to have been the end of the medieval period, a watershed moment, the end of the medieval period and the beginning of the Renaissance, the early modern period. But it went further than just being a historical marker point. It changed the political geography of this region forever. The Byzantine Empire, which was an empire filled with Greek Orthodox Christians, had been something of a buffer state between Catholic Christians in Western Europe and Muslims to the east. And the collapse of the Byzantine Empire meant that the Islamic Ottomans were now more or less neighbours with these Catholic nations, which brought about some pretty profound political and cultural and definitely military shifts across the entire continent of Europe. The fall of Constantinople had consequences that have echoed throughout history to this very day, of course. Istanbul, as it's now known, is still a Turkish city, even after thousands of years of being Greek before that, first, first as Byzantium and then, and then as Constantinople. And the political geography of Eastern Europe and Western Asia was changed forever. It was redrawn after Mehmed's conquest. And look, while the Ottoman Empire has since, fall, has since fallen, its legacy still remains. But how did all this happen? How did this once mighty city, the grandest city in medieval Europe with its impregnable Theodosian walls, how did it fall to the hands of these invaders? It's a very interesting story. It's the culmination of centuries of historical buildup, and it centers on just one man, Mehmed II, Mehmed the Conqueror, who was just 21 years old when he changed the world forever. So let's get into it here. Let's talk about the fall of Constantinople. Strap yourselves in. Because here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back, not to 1453, as you might have thought, but 21 years prior to that, in 1432, when Mehmed the Conqueror was born. Mehmed was the uh, he was he was born as the son of Murad II, who was the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, one of Murad's wives, a slave whose name was Huma Hatun. Now, Mehmed was given a first-rate education, the best possible, as befits the son of a sultan. And from the from a young age, he had it drilled into him that it was his Islamic duty and really his destiny to overthrow the Christian Byzantine Empire. At this point, the Ottomans have well and truly spread from Western Asia into Eastern Europe. They control the areas that are today uh, Romania, Bulgaria, much of the Balkan states, the northern half of modern Greece. Um but the area just to the west of the Bosporus Strait, right, which is to say Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, it still remained under Byzantine control when Mehmed was born. A very small area outside of it, sort of 
you know, encircled by the Ottomans at this stage. Anyway, Mehmed's old man Murad, he had spent much of his reign fighting Christians, as the Ottomans love to do. Um, but after a campaign against Hungary in 1444, he actually abdicated. He decided enough was enough. He hung up the boots and he abdicated in favour of his son. So Mehmed II became Sultan at the age of just 12. He's 12 years old when he became Sultan for the first time. And he continued even as a kid fighting the Hungarians after they broke the truce that had been established. Um, but ultimately in 1446, I mean... He's a kid, right? He recalled his dad back to the position of Sultan. He said, the, the way he did this was actually quite funny because here's what he said to his old man. He said, if you are the Sultan, come and lead your armies. If I am the Sultan, I hereby order you to come and lead my armies. So Murad returned to the Sultanship. He, uh, he, he returned to his former position of power. He kept fighting Christians and then fell ill and died in 1451. And, you know, Mehmed couldn't really call him back from that one. And so the Ottoman Empire was duly handed over once and for all to his heir. Mehmed was just 19 years old when he fully and properly became Sultan the second time. But he was determined to fulfill his destiny, to fight Christians in Europe and to destroy the last remnants of the Byzantine Empire, just as he'd been raised to believe that he would. Now, the Byzantine Empire, as we've kind of touched upon, not in good shape at all. It has gone from being one of the most powerful realms in medieval Europe to a shadow of its former self. And a lot of that had to do with the disastrous Fourth Crusade. Long-term listeners will remember episode five, get across it, or actually don't because those old episodes are just terrible. Holy moly. Um, and look, I don't want to ruin it for you in case you do go back to decide to listen to it. But, you know, the Fourth Crusade began in a pretty traditional way. It began with Christians setting out to attack Muslim cities, uh, just as you'd expect, and then it ended with them sacking Constantinople, which was a Christian city, not a Muslim city. Anyway, Constantinople never really recovered from this, nor did the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, a century and a half later, the Black Death hit, killed about half the inhabitants of the city, went from bad to worse. And by the time we get to the 1450s, the city's population has declined to around 50,000 people. 10% of its former size just a few centuries previous. And so, look, while the fall of Constantinople was a massive moment in history, and I'm certainly not trying to take away from that, I think it's fair to say that the Byzantine Empire is on the way out anyway. I mean, whether you like it or not, that is just what was happening. And Mehmed was a catalyst for this process because he hurried along something that was probably by this stage a historical inevitability. Anyway, the Byzantine Empire has been reduced to controlling the area just west of the Bosporus, as I mentioned, um, some islands in the Aegean Sea, and the Peloponnesian Peninsula in Greece. That's it. A far cry from its greatest greatest extent. In the, in the 6th century, the Byzantine Empire went all the way from Spain to Egypt. It controlled most of Asia Minor, a huge amount of the Mediterranean. But now it's just a few scattered islands, a bit of Greece, and that tiny area outside of Constantinople. But the city is still holding out. It is still holding out against the Ottomans as, as they move further and further west into Europe. But Mehmed is here to change that. While the Byzantines do hold the European bank of the Bosporus, the Ottomans control both the Asian bank and the area west of the Byzantine territory on the other side. So they've got them surrounded. And in this favourable position, Mehmed begins to make his moves preparing for a decisive assault on the ancient Christian city. Now, initially, before it's become, it becomes obvious what Mehmed is up to, European leaders are quite happy to see Mehmed on the throne because he's young, he's inexperienced, he might stuff things up or at least stop fighting Christians in Europe like his dad did. And Mehmed, for his part, gave his European counterparts 
all the reasons in the world to believe that things might be different. He was much friendlier with his Christian neighbours that his that his dad had been, and he was uh, he was a lot more welcoming of ambassadors and envoys initially, at least, as we'll see. But all of this was something of a screen for what he actually got up to, which was building fortresses on either side of the Bosporus to lock down the area around Constantinople. These fortresses allowed him to control the ships going in and out of the strait. And when a Venetian merchant, for example, when a Venetian merchant took his ship and ignored the Ottoman forces in the strait, refused to pay the toll that Mehmet was enforcing, the Ottomans sank the ship beheaded all the sailors and impaled the captain before mounting his corpse as a warning to anyone else who might think to avoid paying the toll for going through the strait. Mehmed was not mucking about. These fortresses meant that he had largely uncontested control of both the land and the sea surrounding Constantinople. So this is not good news for the Byzantines living there. Byzantine Emperor Constantine the Eleventh. he realised that he's a, well... He's not up that creek, is he? No, he's, he's, it, it's well worse than being up that particular creek because as bad as that creek is, it doesn't have Ottoman fortresses straddling it, does it? No. Constantine, realising he's in big trouble, he appeals to Christian nations to the west for aid in the face of this rising threat from Mehmed. And I have to say, it doesn't go well for him. And there are a few reasons for this. Let me go through them quickly. Number one, the Byzantines haven't exactly got on well with Western European nations throughout much of the last few centuries. There was the schism back in 1054 when the Catholic and Orthodox churches both excommunicated each other. Uh, there was the massacre of the Latins in 1182 where the Greek Orthodox inhabitants of Constantinople murdered tens of thousands of Catholics. And then, of course, there was the Fourth Crusade of 1204 where the Catholics returned the favour. So we're looking at several centuries worth of enmity and hatred between Eastern and Western European Christians. There's both all of those events that I spoke about, and then just the general religious tensions between the two different flavours of Christianity that dominated these two regions. So when Constantine the Eleventh comes begging for aid against Mehmed and his hordes of conquering Muslims, I mean, certainly the Western Christians didn't like the idea of an ancient Christian city like Constantinople being conquered by Islam. They also didn't really do that much to stop it and mostly ignored Constantine's pleas for help. And this brings us to the second reason here. This brings us to the second problem that Constantine had with his, uh, with his request for aid. Even if they wanted to help, not many of the powerful Western Catholic nations were actually in a position to. France and England are in the midst of wrapping up the Hundred Years' War. The Holy Roman Empire is far too busy fighting itself to think about fighting Muslims. Um, Christian Spain is in the final stages of the Reconquista, so they've got their hands full. Hungary and Poland are still recovering from the campaigns of Murad II. And to top it all off, the Pope in Rome, who used to be able to mobilise with, with ardent fervour hordes of, of loyal Catholics to go and fight against the infidels to the east... Well, his power has diminished significantly since the time of the Crusades, and not many people, not not as many people, are listening to the directives of the Pope. And in fairness, he didn't really push all that hard for a crusade to stop Mehmed II as well. However, there were those who went off more or less under their own steam to go and aid the Byzantines. And while it didn't amount to more than a few hundred troops and a handful of ships to go with them, every little helps in a situation like this. Um, one bloke in particular, very notable indeed, uh, his name was Giovanni Giustiani, or John Justinian. 
Um, and he was a defensive siege specialist. And he was a huge boon to the Byzantines. They immediately put him in charge of the defense of the mighty Theodosian walls. Now, Constantinople was built on, I guess I guess you'd call it a peninsula. I don't really know what the strict geographical definition of, of the, the landform on which Constantinople is, uh, is built. It's, it's a weird triangle-shaped bit of land. One edge um, is against the Sea of Mamara. One edge uh, is land. It backs onto uh, to the, the the western side of the Strait of Bosporus, um, and the other is a bank of the of an inlet called the Golden Horn. So two edges water, one edge land, and on that land edge is where you would find these Theodosian walls. They were a huge double line of walls that were built in the 5th century. They were massive, absolutely enormous. They'd been maintained and upgraded in the thousand years that they'd stood, and they had kept Constantinople safe through thick and thin, except for obviously the Fourth Crusade, but we don't need to focus on that. Countless sieges of Constantinople had broken against the Theodosian walls, and now they were the best hope Constantine XI had in protecting his city from a land-based invasion. And with John Justinian on the top of them, with Giovanni Giustiani, this, this very experienced and, uh, and well-known siege specialist, the Byzantines' chances certainly improved. Now, look, the Theodosian walls aren't the only walls that defended the city. Constantinople was completely encircled by walls, in fact, over 20 kilometres of them, and uh, these walls defended the city where it met the water as well. The Theodosian walls were uh, defended the city from land. But um, there were walls that abutted up against the sea uh, and defended the, uh, the city from, from the water. But Constantine was still worried about a naval attack on the city, uh, particularly from the Golden Horn. So as a result, he had an enormous chain drawn across the mouth of the inlet so as to prevent Ottoman ships from entering the Golden Horn and attacking the city from there. Constantine was particularly worried about the defence of the Golden Horn for a couple of reasons. First of all, supplies would come from upstream, right? There were ships that could be sent from, from further inland down the Golden Horn and if Ottoman ships could be prevented from entering the inlet, then they wouldn't be able to attack those supply ships. But secondly, and perhaps most importantly, Constantine was particularly worried about an attack from the inlet as that is where the city had been breached by the Crusaders back in 1204, and he didn't want it to happen again. So he did this and everything else he could think of to ready his city's defences in the face of an attack from uh, from Mehmed and the Ottomans. Um, but with only 7,000 men to Mehmed's 100,000, it's estimated, uh, and without further help coming from the West, things really weren't looking ideal. Could all these defences be enough? The chain was raised, the walls were repaired, and in a last-ditch effort to forestall an Ottoman attack, Constantine sent envoys to Mehmed with rich gifts, attempting to persuade him not to attack the city. But Mehmed responded to these envoys a little, well, in a fashion that was perhaps a little, a little less friendly than he had been before, he executed them. He executed all the ambassadors, which, uh, well, look, more than anything else, I suppose it made his intentions clear. Mehmed was preparing for the attack just as much as, as, as Constantine was as well. For his, I mean, for all of the defensive preparations that Constantine made, Mehmed was making offensive preparations. He gathered a colossal force of soldiers. Again, as around the estimates vary pretty wildly, but around 100,000 is probably a, a fair guess. It could be more. We don't know for sure because... 
a lot of Christian scholars who later wrote about the fall of Constantinople exaggerated how many Ottomans were there to make the defeat make the defeat seem more hard fought. Um, in any case, he also had a ton of ships, uh, at least a hundred, maybe even four hundred. Again, we don't really know. But look, bottom line is he's very ready to, ready to attack on both land and sea. But another critically important part of Mehmed's preparations for this attack on Constantinople involved the colossal arsenal of mighty gunpowder weapons that he assembled. Cannons and bombards and other siege weapons. You can hear all about the history of gunpowder weapons and the role that they played in this period in history as we move from the medieval to the early modern era, episode 115, get across it. But suffice to say that even though the Theodosian walls had stood for a thousand years and, and, and defended Constantinople from almost all the attackers that came towards it, they had never had to deal with the type of weaponry that Mehmed was bringing along with him. The Ottomans had some of the largest and most advanced cannons in the world. We don't know for sure how many they brought with them to attack the city, anywhere between 12 and 60, but we do know that these cannons were massive, absolutely enormous, created in state-of-the-art Ottoman foundries. They represented the most powerful siege weaponry the world had ever seen. In fact, one bombard in particular, I want to tell you about this one, it was brought by a mysterious siege engineer known to history only as Orban. Uh, It was over eight metres in length. Orban was Hungarian, or maybe he was German, we don't know, Um, and he had offered the Byzantines his services. They couldn't afford his fee, however, and so he instead approached Mehmed, who could afford it, and he paid for Orban to build this gigantic bombard, eight metres in length, as I say, which which he named Basilica. Now, Basilica was able to fire a 500 kilogram stone cannonball over a kilometre and a half in distance. So the power of this weapon was completely unmatched by any other. It remains to this day the fourth largest cannon made before the World Wars. However, I mean, we can big it up all you want, but it did come with considerable downside. Check this out. It was so big and it got so hot after each shot that it fired that it took three hours for it to be cooled down and be reloaded and ready to fire again. It had to be specially cooled down with oil before it could be reloaded. And it also had a very bad habit of killing the people who operated it, as well as the people who were on the receiving end. Um, As its recoil was so powerful and deadly that those who were near it when it went off risked death. Finally, and this wasn't just Basilica, this was just broadly speaking all of the all of the weaponry that Mehmed brought with him. Um, Mehmed was forced to engage in a small civil engineering program before his attack on Constantinople began because the size of his arsenal and you know just how big and heavy all of these cannons were, uh, he had to reinforce and, and, and strengthen all of the roads that he wanted to take to Constantinople in order to make them able to bear the weight of all of his guns. He had to upgrade these roads, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to take these massive weapons with him. So it wasn't without some downsides, but certainly these cannons played a very big role in the, uh, in the attack, as you'll, uh, as you'll find out in due course. Anyway... Mehmed, with his forces in readiness, he marched on Constantinople. Constantine readied his defences, spreading his forces out along the walls that surrounded his city and and reinforcing, very very specifically, reinforcing points that he thought were going to be the weakest. And he prepared to be attacked 
The Byzantines also had cannons. They were much smaller than the Ottoman cannons and also had a bad habit of damaging the walls that they were fired from with their recoil. So they weren't often used. But I will say this. Morale was actually quite high in Constantinople. It wasn't too bad within the city. The walls had held through countless other sieges. They were in good condition. They'd recently been been repaired and upgraded. And Constantine was hoping that they could hold out long enough for Christians in the West to realize just how bad things were in Constantinople and finally send troops and supplies in order to fight Mehmed off. Mehmed arrived at Constantinople on the 5th of April, 1453, and he ordered his troops to capture the area surrounding the city and began to set up his artillery. And as the siege began, the Ottoman cannons, including Basilica, pounded the Theodosian walls day in and day out. Now, the walls, despite not being built really to withstand gunpowder attacks, they did an incredible job of defending the city from this bombardment. They were that strong, and also because the cannons were both inaccurate and slow to fire, but they were that strong that when the walls were struck, teams of engineers overseen by Giovanni Giustiani, they were quickly deployed out to repair the damage that was done to the walls, and so the walls held. Despite Mehmed dragging these massive cannons all the way to Constantinople, I have to say, they weren't as effective as you might think. Think So strong were the Theodosian walls, so ready were the Byzantines to defend and repair them, and also the cannons were, you know, cumbersome and slow to fire and also super inaccurate. But the gunpowder cannons, while they played a big role in weakening the, uh, weakening the walls of, uh, of Constantinople, they were perhaps the decisive element that Mehmed had been hoping they would be. So Mehmed looked for other ways to uh, whittle down the defences of the Byzantines. He deployed troops to assault the walls directly, and this didn't work either. The Byzantines were easily able to shoot attacking Ottomans from atop their walls, and none of these attacks succeeded even slightly. And Mehmed also had a bad habit of sending more soldiers out to collect the bodies of the dead so they could be properly buried. And so the Byzantines would just then shoot the soldiers who came to collect their fallen comrades, which would then mean that more soldiers would come to collect them. So Mehmed kind of chucked away a lot of... But then again, I mean, he did have a lot of soldiers to, to chuck away in, in this fashion. So I suppose just a drop in a bucket for him. Anyway, another factor that was also really important in the walls holding as they did was Giovanni Giustiani. He was a big part of why the walls held in this way, and not just for the repairs that he oversaw as well. He was uplifting and inspiring. He was a man of great charisma, and he helped to make sure that everyone on the walls, defending, repairing, whatever they were doing, that they got along, they stayed unified in purpose, on task, and and made sure that their top priority at all times was the successful defense of the city. So it really is so far so good for the Byzantines when it comes to Mehmed's land-based assault. But what about at sea? Mehmed had had deployed his naval forces to skirmish with Byzantine ships, but try as they might, they couldn't get into the Golden Horn and attack from there simply because of the massive chain that had been drawn across its entrance. And this was quite a problem because, as I said before, an attack from the Golden Horn just might be the best way into Constantinople. But the chain was doing its job and the Ottoman ships were unable to find their way into the inlet. Perhaps realising that the Golden Horn was key in the continued successful siege of the city, Mehmed came up with a plan to get his ships into this inlet, come what may. And this plan was absolutely incredible. I cannot believe that, first of all, he 
came up with this idea. And second of all, it actually worked, right? He decided to go around the chain. And you're thinking, all right, mate, well, that might be a bit of an issue because going around the chain involved going over land. And traditionally speaking, this isn't something that ships are very good at doing. I Look, you know, I mean, no disrespect to nautically inclined listeners. I mean, may the wind ever fill your sails, but I will be honest and say that if I want to get somewhere over land, a ship tends to be very low on the list in terms of which vehicle I pick to do this. Mehmet, however, he's a lateral thinker and he starts to order his men to fell trees by the hundred. And he tells them to fashion the fallen trees into logs and then take these logs and you're really not ready for what comes next. Grease them up. So you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's this? What's what's his plan here? What's he going to do with these greased logs? Well, he had them laid out side by side, like laid a parallel, right, across Galata, the area on the northern bank of the Golden Horn. He then, this is absolutely true, if you'll believe it, he then had his troops drag the ships across the land along these greased logs and into the Golden Horn around the chain. And so all of a sudden, the Ottomans had made it into the Golden Horn. They were contesting the Byzantines for control of the inlet and, as I said before, preventing these supplies that were coming in from upstream, which was a huge issue for the Byzantines. It allowed the Ottomans to attack the seawalls on the southern bank, to pressure the Ottomans from an area that they weren't having to defend so heavily before because of the chain. And so all of a sudden, the Byzantines are scrambling to defend themselves from this new angle of attack. Constantine redeploys troops across this wall that, as I say, hadn't been hugely heavily defended because there hadn't been a need beforehand. And he sent out Byzantine ships in the Golden Horn to attempt to fight off the Ottomans. And this was met, I have to say, with with mixed results. As Byzantine and Ottoman ships clashed, uh, Byzantine soldiers fled their sinking ships. Some of them swam to the north shore and were captured by the Ottomans and impaled in full view of the Byzantines on the southern bank. I mean, Constantine wasn't about to be intimidated by this. He responded in kind. He brought out 260 Ottoman prisoners one by one and executed them in full view of the Ottomans on the other side. But the Ottomans nonetheless had made it into the Golden Horn, and so the defenders were stretched even thinner as they now had to defend, as I say, this new section of wall. And back to the west, at the Theodosian walls, Mehmed, he hadn't stopped, he hadn't slowed down. He ordered his troops to start digging under the walls to mine and sap them. However, the Byzantines, they're ready for this. Don't even worry about it. They countermined the Ottoman tunnels. They ambushed and killed a bunch of Ottoman sappers and also managed to capture two Ottoman officers who they unfortunately tortured until the officers told them the locations of all of the tunnels, which they then went and duly destroyed. So that was a non-starter from Mehmed. So the Byzantines, they were holding their walls, but time was running out. The Ottomans held the sea. They were contesting the Golden Horn. And of course, they still had an absolutely staggering, overwhelming numerical advantage. So Mehmed wanted to make a decisive final push on the city. And so on the 21st of May, he offered the Byzantines a final chance to surrender. He said that if they did so now, he would allow all the Christians to leave. And further, he would recognize Constantine's possessions in the Peloponnese. So he would still be with a title. 
But Constantine refused the offer, and here's what he said. As to surrendering the city to you, it is not for me to decide or for anyone else of its citizens. For all of us have reached the mutual decision to die of our own free will without any regard for our lives. Brave words, certainly, but ultimately futile ones, because Mehmed prepared his forces for a final decisive assault on Constantinople. And a week later, just after midnight on the 29th of May, the Ottomans mobilised their entire army and navy in a massive attack on the city. Ready to sustain heavy losses, Mehmed was determined to take the city, no matter the cost, come what may, and so he ordered his troops to attack. He deployed wave after wave of soldiers to relentlessly assault the weakened sections of walls, and while the Ottoman dead piled up, they still managed to make headway. Even if they hadn't destroyed the walls, the Ottoman siege bombardment had done its job, and there were areas of walls that were particularly weak and, and ripe for attack, And this is where the Ottomans focused their attack. And when a wave of elite Janissaries breached the walls and managed to kill Giovanni Giustiani, who was leading the defence of the walls, the Byzantines broke. They panicked, they collapsed, and began to flee into the city. And Mehmed, striking while the iron was hot, he surged his men forward. He pushed them through the breached walls and chased the routed defenders into Constantinople. He raised Ottoman flags above the gates that he captured, which caused further panic and chaos amongst the Byzantines. And with the defenders in disarray, with Ottomans pouring through the walls, the battle, and therefore the city, was lost. But what about Constantine himself, the ill-fated leader of the crumbling Byzantine Empire? Well, we're actually not 100% sure about the fate that he met. There are conflicting tales about what happened to him. Some sources indicate that he was caught by Ottoman soldiers and killed as he attempted to flee via boat. Uh, some say that he hanged himself when he realised that the battle was lost. But others tell of a glorious last stand, a final charge that he led against the Ottomans streaming into his city, a glorious death as he defended his city and its people to the very last. Which account is true? We actually don't know. And we probably never will, because anyone who was around to see what happened then isn't around to tell us about it now. But as the Ottomans raged through the city, the dead piled up on the streets, which were awash with blood. While there were Byzantines who threw themselves from the walls in acts of suicide, many stood and fought and died and took down some Ottomans with them as they did so. It was An absolute bloodbath. But of course, the sheer weight of numbers made the Ottoman victory more or less an inevitability. And I'm sorry to say that Mehmed, once the city had been captured, was not a gracious victor. Because after the city had fallen into his hands, he allowed his soldiers a three-day free-for-all of looting and pillaging and murdering and much worse. Byzantines who had hidden in Constantinople's enormous church, the Hagia Sophia, they were taken as slaves, as were those who were found hiding amongst the smoking ruins of the city itself. Loot and plunder was taken wholesale by the Ottomans, although I do have to say, there actually wasn't all that much of it, relatively speaking, for a city of its former grandeur, as the city had been looted so thoroughly only 250 years ago by the Crusaders. But there are stories of just how brutal the Ottomans were. Uh, I mean, look, they differ depending on whose accounts you read, but this much is certain. What wealth remained in the city was plundered by the Ottomans, 
Byzantines were taken as slaves in their thousands, and anyone who resisted was just killed. And look, I don't want to go into too many details here, as there may be sensitive ears listening, but it is possible that even more horrific atrocities were committed throughout this three-day period, I'm sorry to say. Uh, Although, again, accounts differ, so we don't know for sure. And look, I'm not trying to minimise the potential atrocities here by glossing over a certain aspect of them. I'm just recognising that not everyone wants to hear about this sort of thing, especially for younger listeners or those for whom this is particularly uncomfortable. I think we're fine to leave it at a euphemistic, you understand what I mean. In any case, at the end of those three days, Mehmed called a halt to the looting and the pillaging and the enslavement and the murder and the other atrocities. And he issued a proclamation. He guaranteed guaranteed the safety of anyone who had survived this period, anyone who had hidden themselves away and stayed out of sight of the Ottomans would be allowed to return to their homes, if their homes still stood, and would be treated, according to a historian who was actually there at the time and wrote about it, according to their rank and religion, as if nothing had changed. But of course, so much had changed, and the city and the region and the continent, and indeed the world, would never be the same again. After the city had been captured and after this period of looting, Mehmed then turned to the recovery and the administration of the city that would ultimately go on to become his capital, doing things like converting the famous Hagia Sophia, a former Christian cathedral, into a mosque, which it remains to this very day. And with the fall of Constantinople and with it the final remnant of the Roman Empire, Mehmed took for himself the title Kaiser Irum, or Caesar of Rome, and claimed his empire to be the successor to the ancient Roman Empire itself. And as you can imagine, Western Europeans were shocked at the brutal and violent fall of Constantinople, a great Christian city for over a thousand years, where Greeks had worshipped the same god as them, although in a slightly incorrect way, apparently. But now, however, Islam had taken hold of Constantinople. Church were, churches were being torn down or converted into mosques. And the once mighty Byzantine Empire was no more. The Pope called for a crusade, but it came to nothing. Europe simply wasn't in a position to meaningfully contest Mehmed's new conquests. But all the same, many European leaders were deeply concerned about what it meant for Christendom now that a Muslim leader had a firm and seemingly unshakable foothold in the European continent. With Eastern Europe already under Ottoman influence, the fall of Constantinople only cemented the Ottoman position to the east. But all the talk of crusade and recapturing Constantinople, it all came to nothing because Europe, simply put, wasn't in a position to respond, especially as the Reformation is right around the corner and most European Christians became too busy killing each other to kill Muslims instead. But the historical importance of the fall of Constantinople is difficult to overstate. It shifted not only the power balance in the region, but also the way that Europe and Western Asia conducted their affairs politically and culturally and militarily as borders were redrawn as they hadn't been for centuries. And in time, while Christendom didn't collapse, of course, Mehmed II continued to campaign against Christian realms to the east, and the Ottoman sphere of influence grew and grew under his leadership, and he became known as Mehmed the Conqueror. And for very good reason, his conquest of Constantinople redrew maps of the region in ways that haven't changed 
to this very day. The city that was Constantinople is still in Turkish hands all these years later, as it was never reclaimed by Christendom. Although today, of course, we know it as Istanbul. But again, that's nobody's business but the Turks. The fall of Constantinople was a turning point in history, as the last remnant of the mighty Roman Empire was finally extinguished. But it's not just for political or military reasons that historians see 1453 as the end of the medieval era. The westward exodus of Greeks from the former Byzantine Empire brought about a profound cultural shift within Europe, as did, funnily enough, a new level of interconnectedness with Islamic neighbours to the east. And in particular, it was the learned Greek scholars who fled from Ottoman lands and brought with them a heightened level of learning to the places that they settled, particularly in Italy, which was, of course, the birthplace of the Renaissance. As a as an interest in classical studies of ancient Greece and Rome and the sharing of ideas and concepts and learning and tradition and cultures and everything else spurred on the next era in European history. Mehmed II brought about a new chapter in history, not just for himself and his empire, and not just for the region of Western Asia and the entire continent of Europe, but given the political dominance of European nations throughout the second half of the second millennium, Mehmed brought about a seismic shift in world history as he captured the city of Constantinople. Not bad for a 21-year-old kid. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the fall of Constantinople, a very important event and one that I'm surprised we actually haven't covered before. I did double check. I was like, wait, have I done this and forgotten about it? But no, here it is. And I'm, I'm glad to have done it. Anyway, uh, I want to remind you, of course, before we get into the housekeeping, so, well, I guess this does fall under the category of housekeeping, new merch. It's now available on the merch shop. Go to halfhousehistory.net and follow the link there. Very important that you get that uh, referrer code in there to make sure I get paid. Um, but if you want to go and grab one of the new uh, album art cover parody things that I've done, uh, Hannibal Crossing the Alps, Never Mind the Mongols, Here's the Black Death, uh, other classics like that, you can go and grab them now. Um, uh, and if you're a patron of the show, you do get a discount at the merch shop. So if you've been thinking about maybe uh, signing up and you want to grab some merch as well, hey, don't pay more than you need to. Go and uh, sign. Well, I guess you're paying more for the discount code but then i mean maybe the discount code will make back the money look got to spend money to make money that's what i've always said so go and get on the patreon go and go go and get to the merch or merch shop but i'm sure the money will be i'm not sure that is not i'm not guaranteeing you anything like that but i am sure that you'll be able to walk around in a t-shirt that at least some people will think is pretty cool so that's that at least anyway on the patreon of course you do get access to all sorts of other stuff bonus content behind the scenes things early access to episodes as you very well know so go and sign up today if you feel like it. And if you don't, hey, just keep listening for free. That's fine. I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor and just telling people about the show, got to get those numbers up, of course. And uh, a special thank you to all the people who are not only spreading the word of Half House History, but also leaving reviews for the show. Staggering number of reviews on Spotify, iTunes listeners as well, uh, lifting their weight in making sure the show retains immaculate. Well, mm, 4.9 on iTunes. So obviously... There are people there who don't like it quite as much as the clean five stars I'm getting on Spotify, but hey, you know, you take what you can get. 
But thank you to all the people supporting show, the show in uh, in whatever way you choose to. It's greatly appreciated. Back next, next week with more Half-Ass History, of course. Looking forward to your company then. But until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, as we always do. And this one comes to us from Shopai, who asks, outside of North America, do they call it the autumn of Constantinople? <laughs>